The following was recorded by the Zen Society, located in Shemong, New Jersey, near Philadelphia. Please visit us at thezensociety.org. Dharma, incomparable, profound, minutely subtle, pervading the entire universe, revealing right here, right now, is rarely experienced, even in hundreds, thousands, millions of eons. We can see it. We can listen to it. We can express and know it. May we completely understand and actualize this Tathagata's true meaning. If you cannot see what you're looking for, see what's there. One of the most difficult things for us to accept is that beneath all our dreams and disappointments, we live and breathe in abundance. It is hard when in pain to believe that all we ever need is always right here right now, within us, and yet it is nonetheless true. Like leafless trees waiting for morning, something as great and as constant as the earth holds us up and turns us ever so slowly toward the light. Our task is only to be rooted and to be patient. Never was this more painfully true for me than during the aftermath of my first chemo treatment. I was in a Holiday Inn at five in the morning after 24 hours of vomiting every 20 minutes. I was slumped on the floor holding the space of a rib that had been removed three weeks earlier. And my wife, in anger, in panic, in desperation, called out, Where is God? From some unknown place in me, through my pale slouch formed, I uttered, here, right here. The presence of God has never eliminated pain, only made it more bearable. Now, when things don't go the way I want, I try to kiss what waits beneath all wanting. Now, when the car breaks down, though I still get angry, I try to hear the weeds in the ditch as they point me to the sky. Now, when the vase drops from my hand and shatters, though I whine, I try to see beneath my reflection in the pool of flower water. Now, when hurt, I try to feel my way through the tangle of my very normal reactions into the quiet underlying all experience. 
Mysterious as it is, no matter our pain or excitement, our drama or circumstance, all that we can ever hope for is already here. We lack nothing. The humble challenge of being human is not in agreeing or disputing this truth. That is as fruitless as arguing against gravity. Our humble way, if we can open it, is to root ourselves beneath the thousand dreams and excuses, excuses that keep us from the ground we walk on. Time and again, we are asked to outlast what we want and hope for in order to see what is here, what is here now, and what is here is enough. How you doing? <laughs> From the beginningless past, it has always been forever so, forever true. Into the endless future, it will always remain forever so, forever true. That every single person in this room tonight, and every single person who has ever occupied this room, and every single person not in this room this, tonight, and who may never occupy this room, that all beings are born perfect and complete. And that inherent to all life forms, no matter the story that you may hold contrary to this truth, like Mark Nepo to argue with would be like arguing with gravity, no matter the story you hold as evidence that this cannot be so, it remains so, as in the Buddha's own words 2,500 years ago, that all beings are Buddha. That we lack nothing. That everything that we have spent our entire lives in pursuit of, everything that we search for, impulsed by a delusion of lack and blame and shame, Everything, all love, all happiness, all joy, all wisdom and knowledge and understanding on how to navigate our life, how to navigate through a paradoxical mystery, all of that we possess here and now. We were born with it. It is inherent to each of us. All beings, he said, wondrous and miraculous, are enlightened. What else do you want to know? <laughs> so I suppose they want to know how to get to that. <laughs> we are so conditioned away from life within, from life here and now, that any notion of life beneath the surface Anything more than the novelty frightens us. The problem lies in the fact that we are hardwired, that we are designed, literally, for a more deeper, profound reality, much larger than ourselves, that self that too often settles for the small. 
we must not settle. For when we do our light, the only light that can light our way home, for no one else's light can, cannot shine and we will wander in the delusion of lack and shame and guilt and blame and doubt and worriment forever. So, as I often tell my students over the past 40 years, we begin by understanding the difference between what we brought with us and what we have picked up along the way. Between what we were born with, who was born and what was born, and what we have learned ourselves to be what we have been told ourselves to be, that we so often and so easily, without any real resistance, tend to accept as true and real. When you don't know the difference between what you brought with you and what you have picked up along the way, there are no possibilities. Likewise, the ground for our conversation tonight which is also the ground for any true spiritual effort that has as its singular purpose to liberate the being and all the many beings from suffering and the causes of suffering exists in two foundations, exists in understanding this reality we call life and what it is, and understanding of how the mind operates from moment to moment. Without a clear understanding of how our mind translates and pro processes our life force from moment to moment, suffering compounds. So any authentic or genuine spiritual path or journey or practice, whichever metaphor works for you, has as its singular purpose the liberation of the being the liberation of the being from suffering and the causes of suffering. 2,500 years ago, the Buddha spun the Dharma wheel for the first time and declared the Four Noble Truths about life. He said to us, life is suffering, that inherent in life is suffering <coughs> and causes for suffering. Today, I tend to think that he probably said it this way, but they never wrote it down this way because then you would stop reading it. What he probably said was, life is suffering, get over it. And he said it that way to us because he understood something about us. He understood that each of us were born hardwired and designed to meet each and every challenge of life, not just to survive it, but to rise above it and understand it in such a way that we can transform it from something to be fearful of to a force of nature, using it for the benefit of all the many beings. The first step toward getting to what really matters in life and any authentic spiritual practice is about exactly that especially in our day and age where we find ourselves scattered in so many different directions, what is essential here and now is for us to get serious about 
what really matters and to learn how to get to what really matters. We must not settle. We must not settle. We must ask, we must inquire. So the first step toward getting to what really matters is to get that we matter. What do I mean by that? To get that your life matters. Often I am asked a usual question. Roshi, what is the solution for all of the suffering in the world? And every time I respond the same way. You. You are the missing link. You are the solution. And until you realize that for yourself first, and then take what comes from truly realizing that for yourself first, the world is never going to change. What is missing in the world as the solution to the world's suffering is each and every one of you. Our life matters. And by our life, I mean the life you have right now. I often say to people that we Americans have mastered the inalienable right of the pursuit of happiness. We are masters at pursuing happiness, but know very little about life and freedom, about the living of our lives, and the true experience of being liberated in a way that we live at the level of what I call the level of full self-expression. This is what they meant by freedom. To be free is to live at the level of full self-expression so that every single day of your life you can say to people, what you see is what you get. So we know a great deal about the pursuit of happiness. Everyone is in the pursuit of it. Everyone is seeking it. The problem lies in the fact that when we are pursuing happiness, we are pursuing it from a deluded impulse. Part of the stuff that we picked up along the way when we learned that the solution for my life exists apart from me, exists somewhere out there. We never listened to the little redhead who continually reminded us, tomorrow, tomorrow, I love you tomorrow, you're always a day away. Always. And when we are pursuing happiness from the deluded impulse that if someday I get to tomorrow, what we forget is what she reminds us. Even when you get there, tomorrow, tomorrow, you're always a day away. And so it seems that our pursuing of happiness never ends. Even when we get what we want, the Buddha said, we're only satisfied for a little while. Not because there is anything intrinsically lacking in the stuff we have, but because the impulse behind our pursuit is this delusion that here and now is never enough. And yet in his own words, Mark Nepo's writing says to us, here and now is enough. And as Rumi said about love, we say about life. Rumi said, in so many words, that your work in the spiritual practice is not to go looking for love, not to go looking for happiness, 
not to go pursuing all of those ideas of what will make you happy, but to realize love and happiness and joy right here, right now. How? By first discovering all of the emotional and psychological barriers you have created in your lifetime that prevents you from seeing it in yourself, within yourself, here and now, and then to set about dismantling those barriers. The work is not apart from us. It is not about others or the world around us. But we are both, the Buddha said, our cause for suffering and at the same time, our solution. And what happens at the moment of enlightenment is nothing more than a shift where we move from being the cause to the solution, where we move from focusing our life while in the pursuit of happiness on the content of our life. And we'll talk more about that in a few moments. Most of us live our life obsessed with and entirely focused on the content of our life because this delusion convinces us that the content of our life is either the cause for our suffering or the cause for our happiness. When we take a moment, as a friend of mine once said, to become authentic about our own inauthenticity, when we take a moment to be honest with ourselves, our view our point of view is always outward and away. We see the world around us as causing our suffering, and at the same time we see the world around us as somehow mysteriously possessing some magical secret, some solution for us that will make us happy. And because we continue to search for it and pursue it in all the wrong places, we never find it. There is that famous myth in popular childhood story about the Greek gods who gathered in Olympia one day to discuss where they would hide the truth from human beings because they knew that if they got it, they would mess it up. Ain't that the truth? And so, as in all of those stories, someone suggested that it be taken to the highest mountain and placed there. Another wise man said, no, one day man will climb that mountain and find it. Another suggested that it be taken into the deepest part of the ocean. And again, man will go there one day and find it. Another suggested that it be taken out to the furthest corners of the universe in space. And again, someone suggested, no, one day man will travel space and find it there. So as in all of these stories, eventually Yoda stands up and says, I have the perfect place. Let's put it right in man. Put it right inside him. He will never be convinced to go <laughs> there. He will never even consider it. Good old Yoda. The people in our life matter. The people in our life right now matter. There is a Buddhist perspective on everything, or if I will say the content of our life, which includes the people in our life, the stuff in our life, the things we do in our life, our feelings and emotions. There is a Buddhist perspective that all of this is our teacher. The people in our life matters. 
Our life as it is now matters. All the joy, all the sadness, all the successes, all the failures, all of that matter. Nothing in our life, though we are convinced otherwise, is oppositional to our happiness when we understand how to hold it. Nothing is lacking. There is nothing you need to add to your life because everything you need is already there. It has always already been there. You just don't see it. You cannot see it when you are always looking for it somewhere else. I often tell people that the surest way not to find what you're looking for is to not be where it is. The surest way to keep feeling the lack in your life is to keep believing that your life is lacking and that what you need to complete that, what you need to resolve that matter, is always existing somewhere in a later date and time when you get there and you find it. And how many times, or I might say it this way or ask it this way, how's that been working for you? The world we perceive, Einstein suggested, is nothing more, nothing less than an optical delusion. Over the past 40 years, I've had the occasion to speak before graduating classes on a regular basis. And especially in high schools, before they set off to go to college, I often end my talks with the students, with their teachers in the same room, paying them the respect that they most surely deserve, but reminding their students this. I say to them, you have been told for the past 12 years of your life that you have been prepared to live in the real world, that everything you've been doing has been about preparing you to enter the real world. That is a lie. The world that you have been prepared to live in, the world that you and I too often in the course of our lifetime view as the real world is the world we have created. The real world, as again Mark Nepo's words suggest to us, is a world of abundance, where in every moment and every place and every person, everything we need to resolve the suffering in our own lives and the suffering for the world is already present. But the world we tend to easily accept so often as the real world is the world of lack, the world of product, the world of demand, the world of the market, and so forth. The world where we are always operating from a place of either profit or loss. And the problem that when we operate from profit and loss is that while profit exists, so does loss somewhere else exists. Yet the real world is a world of abundance. <coughs> there is no reality except the one contained within us. That is why so many people live such an unreal life. They take the images outside them for reality and never let the world within them assert itself. Herman Hess. There is no other reality than the world within us. And again, if you couple that with what I started with earlier when I said to you that we are so conditioned 
to never look within, to never look deeper than the surface, we are never ever going to experience, as the opening of the Dharma stated, even in hundreds of thousands of millions of eons, the fullness of life. In fact, we never really do. Most people who come to me for counseling often start by saying, my life feels so incomplete. And I often respond by saying, because it is. Your life is so incomplete, but not for the reasons you think it is. And we'll get to that. The world of greed, hatred, and ignorance, the world of politics, government, profit, and loss, is not the real world. It is the world we have created. Then why do we interact with it as if it is? Don't get me wrong. Pay attention to the mosquito on your arm but don't become obsessed by it. From the moment you were born, you responded to one thing, and one thing only. What was that? That is reality. Start living your life accordingly. And so, again and again, all of the teachers, from the Buddha to Jesus, from Moses, the prophets, the sages of the East and Western contemplative practice, practices have repeatedly said over and over and over again that the journey we call spirituality is a journey within to discover where the gods of ancient times hid the truth. And once discovered, nothing will be the same. A moment ago, you heard me again reference Einstein's words. Here's what he really wrote. A human being is part of a whole called by us universe, a part limited in time and space. He experiences himself, his thoughts and feelings as something separated from the rest, a kind of optical delusion of his consciousness. This delusion is a kind of prison for us. It restricts us to personal desires and to affection for a few persons nearest to us. Our work must be to free ourselves from this prison by widening our circle of compassion to embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature in its beauty. And the work that Einstein describes is what I call authentic spirituality. If we are here tonight to talk about using the tool of spirituality as a means towards getting to what really matters in life, because what really matters is in life is our fulfillment. And until we get to that and then live from that place, if we are to talk about spirituality in that way, then we must understand first that what we picked up along the way continues to delude us, create the experience of separation from, and not only determine for us what we will experience from moment to moment, but what we are permitted to experience. And I'll talk more about that in a moment. The Buddha himself affirms Einstein's words when he said, we are shaped by our thoughts. We become what we perceive. When the mind is pure, joy follows like a shadow that never leaves. The world we perceive is a manifestation of our thoughts, or what Einstein called an optical delusion. 
we shape our reality out here from within. The Buddha continued to say, our world and what we think, all that manifests, begins with our perception, our point of view. The world we see and experience around us does not live or exist subjectively from us, but lives interdependent and interconnected with our own perceptions. Our task, as Einstein said, is to free ourselves from delusional perceptions and impulses by widening our circle of compassion, by taking care of our life here and now, and the people and things in our life here and now. So when we begin to take a look at the steps towards getting to what matters, we need to first come home. We need to redirect our attention to our life here and now, exactly as it is and exactly as it isn't. There is where our work takes place. There is where the dismantling and the rebuilding takes place. Charlie Joko Beck, a great American uh, Zen master who died not too long ago, once wrote these words. She said, you can change the carpeting, you can replace the wallpaper and all of the furniture, you can redo the plumbing, you can put in new lighting, but if the room you live in is a prison cell, you will still not be free. You will still not be free. Einstein suggests to us that this experience we often hold and operate from, and in a moment I'm going to talk about what I call the power of living contextually, the power of context as opposed to the power of content. So Einstein says that when we come from this optical delusion where we perceive ourselves as always separated from the joy and the love and that only if when, where, and how takes place, can we know it. When we come from that place, we are regularly and can expect to continue to rob ourselves of any possibilities, of any possibilities. And the way that we do this has to do with what I mentioned a moment ago. We need to begin by taking a look at where the focus or our attention always is. Most of us live our lives at what I call the effect of life, or our focus and attention is on the content of our lives. We have been so conditioned culturally, socially, religiously, even by, through commerce, we have been so conditioned to believe that the solutions for our life exist in the content of our lives. And so the way we do it is, again, Charlotte Joko Beck suggested, is that we spend our lives, our energy, our money, our time in the pursuit of what I call more, better, and different. We are always after more of something we crave or have come to believe will make us happy. And when that ceases to work for us, we go after what, is, what we perceive to be better. And when we pursue better, it works for us a while. When that fails, we then pursue what we think is different. 
if this isn't working for me, then let me go do this, or let me do some yoga instead of Zen meditation, or maybe Reiki, or maybe go back to church. Whatever it is that you do. This all exists in the content of our life, you're saying. And that is what most people often call the rat race. The rat race is in the pursuit of the content of our life as the solution to our life sufferings. So here's what you need to know that scientists learned about the difference between rats and human beings. And so there were two experiments that, take pl that took place. The one has to do with little children when they convince mommy and daddy to go buy them a rat as a pet at home. And if you go to the pet store and you purchase a rat, they give you a cage. And you may notice this or not, but in every single cage they sell you for the rat, there is always, it's included in the cage. You don't buy it as an extra. It comes with the cage. Anyone tell me? Anyone else who's heard before? Be quiet, Maisie. The wheel. There's a wheel in the cage. Now, the wheel in the cage is not to keep your rat thin and healthy. That's not its purpose. What science understood about rats is that when we, want, when we see the rat on the wheel in the cage, the rat, the rat thinks it's in the forest running. You see? So they performed an experiment. And here's how it worked. One day, they took the wheel out of the cage. And this is what the rats did. They chewed their way out of the wire cages. As long as the wheel was in the cage, the rat believed it was going somewhere. Expending a lot of energy, sound familiar? <laughs> running for more, running for better, running for different. But the moment they took the wheel out of the cage, the rats always chewed their way out of the cage. They knew to escape. Guess what they found out about humans? They'll stay in the cage. Why? Because they like it. You see? Another experiment they did to understand the difference between rats and human beings had to do with what is called the third tunnel with no cheese. You may have heard this story. It goes like this. One day, they built a maze of three tunnels. They put the cheese down the first tunnel. They put the rat into the maze. The, mat ran down the, the rat ran down the first tunnel, found the cheese, ate it, and was fulfilled. They took the rat out of the cage. They put the cheese down the second tunnel. The rat ran down the first. All the cheese wasn't there. Ran down the second tunnel, found the cheese, ate it, was fulfilled. They took it back out again and did it a third time, this time down the third tunnel. Put the rat back in the cage, it ran down the first tunnel, no cheese. Ran down the second tunnel, no cheese. Ran down the third tunnel, found the cheese satisfied and content. They did this about 100 times, and the rat always went down the tunnel where the cheese was. What they found out about humans is that humans will continue to go down the tunnel with no cheese, no matter what, because they believe in the tunnel. Someone once said, the light at the end of the tunnel is not an illusion. The tunnel is. The tunnel is. So, we are both cause and solution. If we know how to go down tunnels and look for cheese, and if we understand that the wheel, the race, the pursuing, the constant chasing after what you will never find, 
because it is already within you, will not satisfy us. Any questions? Our task, Einstein said, which is the definition for any authentic spiritual practice, is, as Rumi suggested, to discover the mental and emotional and psychological barriers we have built up in our lifetime, which is all part of the stuff I mentioned earlier we picked up along the way. To first discover those barriers and then to set about the dismantling of them. And in dismantling those barriers, enlightenment is often mistaken by so many as something that happens to us. That if I meditate long enough, the enlightenment fairy will come along and sprinkle the enlightenment dust on me, and I will become enlightened. But nowhere in the teachings of the Buddha Dharma do we find that suggestion. What the Buddha taught was, you are already a Buddha. You are already enlightened. So what happens in the, in the process of discovering and dismantling the emotional barriers, the psychological barriers that we have built up in our lifetime along the way, is a realization. Webster Buddha's definition for the word realize is to make real. In enlightenment, we remember rediscover, realize what, is always, what has always been there, what is already so. And then the second step is to learn how to come from that place. In the advertisement that you probably saw that got you here tonight, the question was, what if you were to discover that your life was already perfect, lacking nothing? Your life is already perfect and lacking nothing. But imagine what your life would be like if that was the place you came from. That was what you brought to every moment of your life, every relationship in your life, every endeavor in your life. What would your life look like if you brought with you an attitude and this bringing with us, again, back to Mark Nepo's words, he says to argue the truth about this is like arguing the truth about gravity. And if you know anything about gravity, you know that gravity doesn't need my agreement. Gravity doesn't need me to agree with it. Gravity operates this way. I mess with it every time it'll knock me on my butt, you see? It operates like that no matter what. Whether I believe in it or not, gravity exists. So what if you were to practice, what if you were to begin to live your life in such a way that what you set out to do every day of your life, rather than having it as a means towards something more, something better, something different, to have it as an expression of your already satisfaction? What if what you began to bring to life, whether realized yet or not, a satisfaction 
for life. A commitment to pay attention to your life. A commitment to actually be in your life as it is right now and in the lives of the people in your life right now, just as they are and just as they aren't. To bring to life your completeness, your wholeness, rather than your perceived incompleteness and your perceived brokenness. Each of us possess, the Buddha said, an inherent ability to change our karma and to change the karma of the world, if we know how. One of the myths about karma, as it is often taught in our Western culture, it is, is that it's this kind of predetermined judgment about our life out of which we cannot get. And that is not what he said. What he said is that I have the ability to change my karma at any moment, any moment I choose. I have the ability to change my life any moment that I choose. Without a clear understanding of how the mind is operating, what I'm talking about is not possible. So let's continue there. At every moment of our lives, we perceive the world from this location. I am perceiving you right now from here. My perception of you is interdependent with my life's experiences. And this is essential for you to understand. Just the other day, I was with one of my students who is a wonderful mother, a wonderful woman, but who has convinced herself she's never good enough. That is what she brings to every moment of her life as a woman and every moment of her life as a mother. And if you were to be in the company of her one-year-old son, you would know how irrational that is. You would see that this child that she has mothered for a year now is healthy and joyful and happy, and yet his mother is literally unable to believe that she had anything to do with that, that she was responsible for that. Her perception of herself, which is interdependent with the lessons she learned in her life about herself, not only determines for her, as it does for every single one of us, what she experiences in the moment about herself, but also determines what she's permitted to experience. The mind is always recreating the world around us according to its agenda. So often I say to people, you don't even see me. You don't even hear me. In fact, I'm not even here. I'm on a beach in Miami with my other monk in Key West having a margarita right now. <laughs> Our mind is regularly perceiving the world around us from an irrational, illogical perception that we so often accept as real and true. And that perception is what we are regularly bringing. So what I just told you is that the perception of this young woman, this wonderful woman, this wonderful mother who's raised this beautiful child who just turned one, years old, one year old, can't even enjoy the fact 
of she, uh, the, the, the fact of mothering and the fact of, of being a good parent and a good woman can't even do that, even though that's the reality. And so often for many of us, again, as Einstein and Rumi and the Buddha suggest, are unable to experience our life right now as complete and as wondrous and as miraculous as they said it was and is, only because we do not understand that the world we often perceive is part of this optical delusion. When I understand how the mind is operating from moment to moment, and this is all part of what many of you I'm sure have read about, maybe even participated in trainings on living mindfully or mindfulness meditation. What mindfulness meditation is about is having an awareness of how my mind is operating from moment to moment and to use that awareness in making choices and decisions that are based on what is really so here and now rather than my perception. So the mind is regularly recreating the world around me and translating that, the reality or the perceived reality of that world according to my beliefs, according to my opinions, according to my desires, according to what I call my agenda. When I enter a room, my mind sees only what it's looking for. And I can prove it to you. If I were to take a group photograph before you left here tonight, and you were to invite me back here next month, and I were to say to you, I will have that photograph blown up on the wall behind me, or maybe the wall behind you, and you entered the room, who would you be looking for in the photograph? Yourself. Yeah. The mind sees only what it's looking for. And each of us unknowingly enter the room with a preconceived agenda for what we will see in that room. Remember a moment ago I said to you, you don't even see me? What you leave with tonight is your perception of me, and I know that. That's why I don't get concerned about whether you like me or not. You don't even know me, I'm saying. But when I know this about myself, love, if you will, for a moment, is that moment in our life when that agenda drops away and we see other authentically. We see them as they truly are, and they see us as we truly are. That's what we call love in that moment. We often refer to it as what? Unconditional love, isn't it? Because all the rest of the time, we are conditionally looking at each other. We are bringing preconceived conditions. So when I look at you, everything I have to say about you, there is a practice I give my students to do regularly. And it goes like this. Every single time you have a thought that is either self-critical or self-judgmental or of anyone else, ignore it. It is a lie. Because all judgments and all criticisms of myself and of others are conditional. When I criticize you for the way you look, the way you act, the way you talk, what I'm actually saying to you is, you're not behaving the way I think you should. 
And if you're not going to behave the way I think you should, what you need to know is that I know the way you should behave. <laughs> you see? And that's what I see, or that's what I don't see. So we can all stop getting concerned about what other people think about us tonight, which has a lot to do with a lot of the decisions and choices a lot of people make. Because their thoughts are not about us. Their thoughts are about their thoughts about us. You see? And in relationships, and on February 7th, you're all invited to come to Pine Wind and participate in the relationship seminar that I've been doing for the past 15, 20 years. I talk about skillful communication. And when we have really communicated with someone else in such a way that it really works for us, what has happened in that moment is that I have stopped doing what prevents me from communicating effectively. Most of us, when we are communicating, what we are listening to is our thoughts about what we're hearing. Effective communication that transforms and, and heals and renews and sustains relationships is the skillful means by which we stop thinking about our thoughts and think about their thoughts. Where we stop hearing our own voice and hear their voice. You see, we call that listening. I'm listening to you only when I stop thinking about my thoughts about what you're thinking or saying. Because in every moment, the mind is viewing the world from a preconceived perception. So when the Buddha laid out the prescription in the Fourth Noble Truth for liberating yourself, guess what he said was the first step? Right view, right perception, right understanding, which means and view a perception and understanding that works, not one right as opposed to wrong. And what never works is when my perception of you is being clouded exclusively with my agenda. It takes a lot of courage to be willing to admit, and I want to invite you to step up and be courageous right now for your sake, not mine. It takes a lot of courage to be willing to admit that I really am just about my stuff. You know what I'm and that I'm listening to you, and that your value to me is almost exclusively dependent upon you liking my stuff. <laughs> I often say to people, what we mean by friends is that that's usually the group of people who agrees with us. And what we mean by enemies, that's the group of people who don't agree with us. You know, the Republicans. <laughs> <laughs> Without a clear understanding of how the mind is operating from moment to moment, suffering compounds. So when I understand that you and I have this paradoxical mechanism called self, which the Buddha taught does not really exist, and we are operating from this self, this me, myself, and I, which is nothing really more than my agenda, and my life's experiences 
formulating and recreating my experience in this moment here and now. <coughs> then I have an opportunity to relearn that. When students come, to, when candidates come to the monastery to train with me, among the many things that they are told is that, that they have come here to relearn everything they have learned to date about how to live. And if they're not willing to do that, they're in the wrong place. The very thing, and we'll talk more about this in a moment, absolutely essential to transform our life experiences is the very thing we resist the most, and it is change. The only thing that brings about any change in my life is to change the way I do it. The surest way to have your life continue the way it always has is to keep doing it the way you've always done it. And Einstein said, to keep doing it the way you've always done it and get the same result and keep doing it the same way, expecting a different result is insanity. So you remember when they told you you were nuts? They were right. <laughs> they were right. The surest way to have my life continue the way it always has is to keep doing it the way I've always done it. Therefore, before you leave here tonight, if you have any real interest in making any real difference in your life, you need to create the willingness to make changes. The way you do it, to continue to do it, will produce the same results, no matter how many times you do it, no matter how much you polish it, and clean it up, and redress it, and call it something else. I'm gonna say. The only thing that brings about change in anyone's life is change. We need to embrace change, not only as the means for real transformation, but also as a fact of life. The Tibetans say, you have two choices, to go with the flow or to be drugged by it. <laughs> you know what I'm because the flow is the flow of life. Change is a coming, and it will keep coming again and again. Any questions? I have a question. Hi. Hey, John. Hi. <laughs> How are you? Good to see you too, Judy. So you're talking about the whole more, better, different thing, and then I hear you talking about change, and then going with the flow. So would you say that going with the flow is the only change we need to do? Or like how do you, how do you differentiate between the different and the, and the change? First you need to know what the flow is. And what the flow is, is change. And what you need to change is your resistance to that. Okay? Okay. So like that. Okay? Got that? <laughs> Good to see you. Where's your where's uh where's he at? Is he he's not, okay. I got it. Nothing else needs to be said. <laughs> change. <laughs> 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 they're done Society's that. Society's institutions 
tend not to change. I'm sorry. Say Society's that institutions tend not to change. And they tend not to change because we don't insist they do. We let them continue to stay stagnant. We permit it. Remember what I said a moment ago? We need to not settle. We need to not settle for that. Okay? So societies and institutions tend not to change because we let them stay that way. Okay? Turn that off. <laughs> I'm going to change him later. <laughs> Let's uh, continue with that. So what, what do you want me to hear about? That? Well, uh, it's, it's difficult to change when it's, well, it's, it's, it's a constant thing that keeps moving in the same direction. And institutions like religions, churches, government, they don't like change. They resist change, and we need change. It's this constant battle trying to go through. All right, so thank you. What's, what's your name? Michael. Michael? Michael, let me say this, and thank you for bringing it up, because I may have failed to have said it earlier. Once again, we have arrived in the process of evolution as a society and a culture where we can no longer continue to depend on the institutions of our life to make the changes. We need to be the change we want them to be. We need to make the changes. So when I said earlier, your life matters, I mean your life matters. And that the work of <coughs> Michael's life is in Michael's life, no matter the institution and its position. You need to be the change. The institutions will change when we change. And when we stop settling for that stuckness. That's the only thing that makes them change. That's the only thing that's ever made anything change. You know, the late Dr. Martin Luther King, who I adore, and the millions of things that he said about how to skillfully bring about change. He, he, he repeatedly talked in everything. There was a, there was a constant theme in everything that he said. And the theme was, no matter what you do, meaning at that time in the 60s, those cultural and social institutions that you know, were committing the anti-rights you know, against his people, he said, you can go on being that way. I'm not here to change you. What I want you to understand is that I'm not going to become you, you see. And in my choosing not to become that, and not to be that, you'll, you'll see your way. You'll see the way. And he was right. And he was right. We need the Buddha. You know, I often tell the story. Buddha lived 46 years of his life and died from food poisoning. And I remember reading for the first time the story of his death. And I imagined it again this way. There he was dying on his deathbed, surrounded by all of his monks that he had trained all those years, all of the senior monks, the new monks, and so forth. And for 46 years, he taught the same lesson. And there he is dying, and they come to the Lord Buddha, and they say, what about us when you go? What, what should we do? And I often say to people, I could hear him say, oy vey. <laughs> <laughs> 46 years, and these, this was his dying words. 
46 years he said these words to them. Ata Dipa. Rely on yourself. You are the Dharma. You are the solution. What did I say earlier? You are the missing link. We need to shift our attention from the institution as the source for change to ourselves. We need to be the change. That's my answer to that. You're right. If we wait for the institution, we're just going to keep waiting. It's not going to happen that way. Never has happened that way. Okay? Thank you. Anyone else? Atta Deepa. We begin by owning our life, owning our authority, owning our power to be a force of nature, as George Bernard Shaw said, rather than a feverish, selfish little cloud of ailments and grievances complaining that the world and all of its institutions are not devoting themselves to making me happy. We need to own our authority, our ability, our own dharma, and we need to bring that to every moment of life. As long as we continue to expect the solution for our lives to come from outside us, you know, it's like I often say to people in relationships again. In the relationship seminars, I talk about the fact that when we are in relationship with someone, this, this delusion I'm talking about tonight tends to ha uh, cause us to perceive that other person as the solution for our happiness. Okay? And the way we often do that, the way that often, you know, um, the mechanics of that is, is that I blame you for my unhappiness, you're saying. And that blame comes from a place where I believe that if only you would change, I would be happy. And what we fail to understand is that when we bring that perception, when we bring that context to our relationships, when we bring that way of being, what do we get to do? As long as he is the cause for my unhappiness, as long as she is the cause for my unhappiness, what do I get to do? I get to wait. That's it. I get to wait. And you don't need me to tell you this part. You're going to wait a long time. <laughs> because you know what they're doing? They're waiting for you to change. You see? So there's the Buddha on his deathbed. Atta Deepa. Rely on yourself. Stop relying on me. Stop relying on anything. You are the Dharma, he said. You are the light. Rely on yourself. You be the change you want for the world. You be the change you want for your relationship. Anyone else? So once I know how the mind is operating, how this egocentric part of my consciousness that is always about me, myself, and I, perceiving the world around me as something separate and apart from me. And because of that perception, Einstein went on to explain, we are always perceiving the world as something to either defend ourselves in, 
protect ourselves from, or the world is something to pursue to gain something more for ourselves, something better, something different. When I am bringing that perception to my life and to every moment of my life, the possibilities for my satisfaction and fulfillment, the possibilities for sustainability in any relationship, when I'm constantly bringing to the relationship a prerequisite that you are the source of my happiness and when you shape up my happiness will come to me, the possibilities are limited. Sustainability is not possible and fulfillment never comes except in moments coming and gone again, to come again and go again. So I often say to people, it's okay to live that way. Nothing I'm talking about tonight has to do with absolute. It's okay to live that way. If you want to live that way, that's fine. But remember this, when you live that way, 50% of your life will be miserable. So the only choice you get is this. Do you want the first 10 years to be miserable or the last 10 years? You see? Because that's how it measures out. You see, 50% of the time I'm happy because you're the other half and my happiness is dependent upon you, you see. But when I learn that I am the source of my happiness and I learn how to bring that happiness to the relationship, that fulfillment to the relationship, that shows up as a force in nature. That shows up as a power to transform the relationship. And, no other, and if for no other reason, you get really attractive to them, you see? Because they're looking for the hero too. Any questions? So when I understand how the mind is recreating the world around me, at that moment I am able to step out. And this is what we mean by detachment in Buddhism. When Buddhists talk about detaching, that it means to detach from what I call, and Trungpa Rinpoche called, the bureaucracy of ego. What I've been describing so far tonight is the bureaucracy of ego and how ego recreates reality and how we, because of our ignorance, the second noble truth, the Buddha said the cause for our dissatisfaction is that we are ignorant of who we truly are and we are ignorant of how the mind is operating and how the world around us operates. And we ignore our inherent power and ability for our own satisfaction and fulfillment. So ignorance, he said, is the cause of suffering. So once I recognize that ignorance and understand it for what it is, the next step in the third noble truth, he says, now there's a solution. Now you've got a solution. But before we even get to the third and fourth noble truth, I need to step back to what I said a moment ago. We begin by getting our act together. And the way we get our act together is to understand again how the mind is operating. Now once I know how the mind is operating, that knowledge, that wisdom is what I bring to my choices, to my decisions, to my behavior, to my actions. When you see the fourth noble truth, the prescription that the Buddha lays out for liberation, he talks about right thought, right speech, right action, and so forth. Right thought, right speech, right action, rooted in atadipa. My thoughts, my words, and my actions 
become a force of nature, become a tool for real transformation. But when I'm constantly coming from the ignorance of who I truly am, and the source of my true happiness, my lasting happiness, my sustainable happiness, then my thoughts, my words, and my actions just cause a lot of pain and suffering for me and others. Prior to enlightenment, there is a lot of assumption. We assume that just because we think it, it is so. One of the exercises I often give my students is that when a thought, and when you understand the nature of thinking, we don't have time tonight, that's another talk. When you understand how thoughts operate in the mind, so I tell my students that when a thought of fear and worryment shows up for you, what we normally do is we act on that. We react immediately. We act on it as if it is real and as if it is happening. And most of our life, we spend our life fighting ghosts, worryments and fears that don't really exist for us. So when thoughts of fear and worryment show up for me, and I understand how the mind operates. I understand this bureaucracy of ego. The first thing I do is I own my life. I own my future. I take charge of what's next by taking a moment to stop and ask the question, how do I know this to be true? How do I know that to be true? And when we take a look at some of the steps we're going to cover in a few moments, that are skillful means to bringing all of this into reality for oneself. When we take a look at them, we want to separate untruth, the stuff that's just perception, the stuff that's just you know, rooted in no facts from what is real. And we want to indulge, we want to invest our energy. We invest so much energy into what is not so, that is only perceived. And that's why so many of us, I talk about how at the monastery so often, numbers of people who come to the monastery that work at a desk all day come to meditate at night, and they look like they've been digging grave sites all day. You know what I'm saying? They look that tired and that exhausted. Because the truth of the matter is, is that you don't need a shovel in your hand to be digging your own grave. You know what I'm saying? When we look at how our mind, and this is where the value and importance, the quintessential importance of meditation comes in. Because in meditation, we get to see what's running in the background in us. And what's always running in the background for us, whether we are aware of it or not, and again, through meditation, we become aware of it, is fear and worryment. We're always qualifying, judging, testing our life in every moment. And we're always coming from a place of lack or fear and worryment. So when I'm aware that that's what I'm bringing to the thinking process in this moment, I can then step out, detach from that. So again, my instruction to my students have all, has always been the same thing. When you find yourself stuck in fear and worryment, just simply say to yourself, ah, just another thought. If you're Sicilian, you say, ah, don't worry about it. <laughs> just another thought, you see. And Return to what you're doing. How do I know that to be true? Is a quintessential question in making choices in life. So before I react to the impulse to run or to fight or to flight, before I do any of that, I stop and I examine the experience. How do I know that to be true? 
If I don't know that to be true, I immediately dismiss it. I don't indulge it for a moment. Thoughts are not the problem. One of the errors of meditation practice is that people tend to think that if you meditate long enough, you stop thinking. I tell people, yes, you will stop thinking, but that means you're dead. <laughs> Thoughts have a life of their own. Your indulgence of those thoughts is what we train in in Zen meditation. We train not to indulge in thoughts for which we have no factual base to be true. When I was a kid, one of the popular shows was a movie where a cop ran around and said to everybody the same thing. Just the facts, ma'am, just the facts. And we need to learn how to live by the facts. I know there's a whole party in Washington that doesn't believe facts mean anything, but they do, you see. We need to live and operate from the facts. So when we are stuck in fear, when we are worried, when we are, find ourselves unable to make a choice, we are more likely to discover that what we are indulging is a worryment for which there is no evidence to be true. When there is no evidence to be true, we stop indulging it. Stop indulging the stuff that is draining the life out of you. You want to invest in something. You know, anybody who does investing in here will tell you the same thing. Invest in what will bring you a return, not the stuff that drains your account. I want to talk about what I call the power of context. And I want to talk about it because that's where the real power is. That's why I call it the power of context. So far tonight, I've been talking about how most of us operate in the content of our life. We live trying to build our life in the stuff in our life. We view the stuff as where the power is. The stuff has no inherent quality. Whatever the stuff is for us, whatever quality it has, is the quality we've given it. Content does not make a difference. I have been in the company of some of the richest men and women in the world, as well as the company of some of the poorest in third world nations. Having a lot doesn't make you happy. Having little or less doesn't make you sad, you're saying. It's all about context. So, context, Webster says, is this. This is Webster's definition of context. That which surrounds, gives meaning to, something, making it real. So when we talk about context, we are talking about the source of the existence of that particular thing. Context allows for, it allows for certain content to show up. It's like H2O. Hydrogen plus oxygen at a certain power creates water. You need that. That is the context for water. The context for water is hydrogen plus oxygen at a certain power. Context is what creates, it is the source. In Catholic school we were, said, we were taught God is the uncaused cause, the context of everything that exists, okay? 
So when we are operating from a place of context all the time, that context is what determines for us not only what will show up in our lives, but what is permitted to show up in our lives. I may want water, but the absence of hydrogen determines whether I get it or not. I may want to be happy, but the absence of what creates for happiness and sustains it determines whether or not that is so. So our focus needs to move from the content of our life to learning how to create the context for what we want. The power of context is a shift from living your life in the effect of your life, the stuff in your life, the things in your life, the circumstances in your life, and operating in that domain, from that domain, to shifting to living your life from a place of context, from being the cause for what you want. Another word for this is responsibility. Responsibility begins with the willingness to experience myself as the cause for the stuff I want in my life, as the cause for the happiness in my life. When I am projecting you, projecting onto you responsibility for my happiness, that is not responsibility. That is blame. That is fault. That is shame. So when we talk about being responsible and responsibility, it begins with a willingness on my part. I am responsible. I am a responsible, mature adult when I am willing to experience myself as the cause for the stuff in my life. So in my life, the stuff that shows up in my life especially the difficult stuff, the unpleasant stuff, the stuff I don't like, I am responsible for that just as I am responsible for all the other stuff. So I don't go looking for you to fix my life. I don't go looking for you to make my life better. Not only don't I go looking for you, I don't go looking for that new car to do that. I don't go looking for that new house to do that. I don't go looking for that new relationship to do that. If I'm going to find sustainability and fulfillment in my relationship, I am going to be the cause for that. I am going to be the creator of that. So enlightenment is really moving from living your life in the content domain of life to the cause domain in life. And this is how you do that. It's something I call Ready? Nike Buddhism. <laughs> you know what Nike Buddhism is, right? Just do it. I should get that uh, copyrighted. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure Nike might say something. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what I got to say to Nike. <laughs> Just do it. Now, I'm going to tell you ahead of time what you need to be aware of. When you think about this later, and you will, when you talk about me later, and you will, your mind 
the bureaucracy of ego, will provide you with every rational and justifiable reason why you can't. Know that. What is Nike Buddhism? Just do it. When we are living from the content of our life, that includes our thoughts. Most of us will wake up Monday morning because the alarm clock went off. You see? That's no reason to wake up. You see? And the way you get out of a life where you have to have a reason to do it, and when we talk about uh, sustainable practice in Zen, just do it is the only thing that sustains practice. In March, I will celebrate my 40th anniversary, and I've told this story for at least 20 out of, yeah, almost 20 out of those 40 years because of where I live now. When you come to Shemung, and you need to come to Shemung, when you come to Shemung, and it isn't at the end of the earth, okay? I came to you. <laughs> when you come to Shemung, you will see that I live in a 3,600 square foot structure that is one length long. Okay, one line. And at the, this end of that structure is our meditation hall, our zenda. And at the farthest end of that structure is where I live and sleep, okay? And I don't use the heat like you do in the winter. I sleep under four blankets rather than turning the heat up, okay? All right, so Monday morning, they're predicting 12 degrees weather in Shemang. At the time I get up to go to the Zendo and get it ready for all the people who don't come and meditate at 6 o'clock. Okay? Right? And I do that Monday through Friday. Okay? So at 4 a.m. I wake up and I wake up and I move the blankets and my mind says, stay in bed. Nobody's coming. They don't come. Every morning you get up and you do this and nobody comes to sit. It's cold. Stay in bed. And I start to get out of bed more. And my mind says, get back in. It's cold. It's cold. And that conversation, followed by a lineage, a continual lineage of reasons, all rational and justified. It even gets to the point where I hear my mind say, you're the Roshi. Nobody's going to criticize you for not going to meditation. <laughs> that conversation starts the moment I move the blankets in 12 degrees weather to the moment I take my cushion in the zendo and start to meditate. It continues the full length of that building until I get to that cushion and sit down and meditate. I mean, I'm shivering in there, getting the wood in the stove and trying to get started, and my mind's saying, what the hell? <laughs> you know, it's cold, you know? And it's not until I take that cushion does those thoughts stop. Now, that's how it operates for me after 40 years. What luck do you think you've got? <laughs> and the only solution, the only solution after 40 years has been the same as it was 40 years ago. Just do it. Just do it. So when the institutions will not move, just do it. 
When your spouse will not move, just do it. Every moment of your life, just do it. I call that the principle of identity. Most of us operate, as I said a moment ago, because we have a justification, a rational reason, we have an agenda to do that. When you practice with an agenda, sustainability is not possible. When you are in relationship with an agenda, sustainability is not possible. Whether it's a relationship with another person or a relationship with your meditation practice, your yoga practice, anything at all. When you bring only your agenda as your purpose for doing it, there will be failure. There will be rational and justifiable reasons to not do it today. The real power comes from just doing it. The principle of identity for me goes like this. My mother will tell you I came out of the womb this way. So let's suggest she was right. So since I was seven years old, I've had this affinity towards spiritual life. All my life, that's all I've ever known, to be a monk. Every day of my life as a man, as a single father, as, as, as part owner of my family's business, and all of that, I operate from the place of being a monk. That is my identity. That is what I identify from. So 40 years ago, I promised, because I decided to be a monk, I made a promise. I took a vow. And in those vows, I said I would always operate this way. As long as I operate that way, as long as I come from what I call the principle of identity, as long as I function as a monk everywhere in my life, my life works. The moment I move from that, the moment I compromise that, that's when I suffer. The principle of identity is Nike Buddhism. Say what you mean, mean what you say, all the time. Even when you mess up, because you will. I do. When I talk about this in relationship seminars, I talk about the wedding vows and how they need to be changed. You see, and one of the ways I also talk about is I often tell women, the next time you go out on a date with the guy for the first time and they tell you all that they're going to be for you, don't listen to that. Here's what you listen to. Listen to their excuses as to why they won't be that. And if they have more than two, run away. You see. And the only two that they are permitted to have is I died and then I died again. That's why I didn't show up last night. <laughs> like that. Someone once said, nobody's that busy. It's really about priorities. It's really about priorities. You're saying. In the principle of identity, I'm always operating from this place, and I talk about it in relationship to raising my beautiful, gorgeous five-year-old daughter who I adore, who has been my greatest teacher for the last five years. And here's what I tell Katie every day. Daddy absolutely loves you. Daddy may not always behave that way, but I do. 
And I promise you that that is what I will always bring to our relationship with each other. And when I mess up, and I want you to hear this because this is what I want you to remember, I will clean up my mess. I will not expect you to. So I talk about this again in the parenting seminars that I do where I talk about the spilled milk. The spilled milk has to do with when the family's around the dinner table and everybody's talking and the kid reaches across the table and knocks the milk over. Instead of telling him about how milk costs more than gasoline, well maybe not anymore, let's see. And instead of getting upset and angry, you clean up the milk. Then everybody gets to go back to talk about what it is to be a family and what their life is and so forth. You're saying? So my promise as a monk is to always bring love to my words and actions. To always bring compassion to my words and actions. Do I always want to? No. Sometimes I must muster up all the compassion in the world for some people. You're saying. Do I always want to be loving and kind? No. I'm Sicilian. It's not in us. It takes real Nike practice. You see? If you don't think I haven't want to pop somebody in 40 years. <laughs> we need to step out of the delusion that feelings and thoughts create within us that we are not capable of bringing integrity to every moment of our life. We were designed for integrity. And I can prove it to you. We were designed to be a force of nature, and I can prove it to you. The principle of identity says, know who you are first. Get your act together and find out who you really are. When you find out who you really are, bring that to every relationship. Now, finding out who you really are isn't as simple as saying, oh, yeah, this is who I am. Finding out who you really are requires a willingness on my part to, again, make a distinction between what I brought with me and what I picked up along the way. Strip away or deposit everything that I picked up along the way, and what I have left is who I am, is who I truly am. And we all know who that is because that's the stuff we so naturally respond to. No one has to encourage us or convince us. When I witnessed the birth of my daughter in that delivery room and watched her first reach out and grab my finger, and then while they were cleaning her up and I was talking to her, and her mother was you know, obviously still on the table over there, I said to her, I'm going to now take you over to mommy. She looked at her. She knew who her mother was. And when I laid her down in her mother's arms, she sunk into her mother's arms. We are hardwired to respond to that which we identify with, and that which we identify with is love. I made a promise to my daughter five years ago, and I'm happy to say I haven't broken it yet. That's what I bring to my relationship with her every second of the day, and that is what I'm trying to teach her. That is what gets me up in the morning at 4 o'clock with 12 degree weather to make the journey through the house to start the fire for those of you who never come. <laughs> the principle of identity. Know who you are, 
and bring that to every moment of your life. Bring that to every moment of your life. The Tibetans call spirituality the, the way of the warrior, the spiritual warrior, Shambhala, the spiritual warrior. We need to practice as warriors. The warrior has no excuse. The warrior knows just one way. There is a wonderful saying in Zen, even if the sun were to rise in the west, the Bodhisattva knows one way. Even if the sun were to rise tomorrow in the west, which would cause catastrophic events throughout the galaxy, the Bodhisattva will still act in one way, bring to life one way of being. That is the warrior's way. The warrior's way is to live with precision. Know what you want in your relationships. Speak what you want in your relationships. Act according to what you want in your relationships, no matter what they are saying or doing. Be the love you want in your relationships. Years ago, there was a, a wonderful professor who wrote many books about this. You may know him. I got to meet him in Rome one day when I was hanging around the, the ancient city. Uh, we had a few drinks together. His name was Leo Biscotti. Anybody remember Leo? And Leo used to say, the problem with most people's relationships is that they wait for February 14th to come around once a year. I don't. And he and his lover celebrate February 14th every day. He said, every day I celebrate Valentine's Day. So I never miss it. You see? Be the change you want in the world. Be the love you want in your relationship. Now, does that mean that you're always going to get what you want? No. No. If you were listening earlier, there's another fact here. And that is, until they're willing to step up and be the change and be the love they want in their lives, they don't even see you or hear you. So what's the solution there? Continue to be it, no matter what. No matter what. We need to stop negotiating. We need to insist on precision in the way we live our lives. And last but not least, we need to live our lives purposefully for a purpose larger than ourselves. So I'm going to give you two secrets, open it to questions, and I'm going to get ready to go home. Back to Shimon. Ah, oh, Shimon. <laughs> People ask me, what is the meaning of life? And when you come to Shimon, I will take you outside and walk with you in the pine lands and tell you to look. There is where you'll discover the meaning to life. And when you take a look at the trees and the grasses and the animals and so forth, the meaning for life is everywhere. The meaning of life is to live your life. But to live your life. To live your life fully. And to never stop living your life. You were born to be who you are and to live your life fully. That's the meaning of life. All of life knows nothing else. Everywhere in the forest, except for human beings, 
Every other member of the forest, of which we are all a part of, lives for that purpose, to be alive, to be alive. When I was about 15, 16 years old, I was a volunteer fireman in the town I grew up with. A buddy of mine and I decided to join the local fire department, and two weeks after we did, uh, there was a huge fire in the Pinelands in New Jersey that took almost two weeks to put out. And so one night we were there with about 50 other different fire companies from all throughout New Jersey fighting this huge fire coming across towards Route 206. And we had to create a firewall to prevent it from jumping over. And so I was in there, first time I ever had that experience, and, and suddenly I heard this sound that sounded like it was starting to rain. And I yelled out to this old timer who had been a fireman all his life. I said, Gus, it's starting to rain, it's starting to rain. He said, that's not rain, just pay attention to what you're doing. Later on that night when we went back to the firehouse, he told me what it was. And this is a guy who'd been fighting fires all his life. And he had fought fires in the forests of the Pinelands, in California, all around the, the United States. And this was the story he told me, and I never forgot it. He said, what you thought was rain was this. The pine trees in the pine lands were dropping their seeds. The seeds were dropping out of the pine cones. The pine trees inherently knew to drop their seeds, even though they knew it was their demise. And the forest I see today was because of that. The purpose of your life, the meaning of your life, is to live your life. The purpose of your life is the same thing, to live your life as a benefit for others, to shine your light in the world, to live your life as a benefit for others. I tell people, the only time I have ever known that I am loved is when I have been in the act of loving. When I am loving my daughter, I don't need to know whether she loves me or not. When I have ever loved anyone, I don't need to know that they love me or not. It is in the act of giving, as he said, that we truly receive. If pine trees know that, you should know that. You should know that. Any questions? That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> Hi, kids. I just want to say to you, uh, thank you for telling us about the pine cones. I'm going to remember that. I've never forgotten it. I'm going to remember that, and bless you. Thank you. Thank you. Bless you too, kid. <laughs> so if you want to hear more of what i got to say, <laughs> come to Shimon. But first, go buy my book. <laughs> Where'd Chico go? I did it, and he walked out of the room. <laughs> you know where Marlton, New Jersey is? You know where Marlton, New Jersey is? Okay. We're about 10 minutes east of Marlton. Okay? Straight down Route 70. Okay, so you got Marlton, Medford, Shamong. Okay? The only difference between Shemung and everywhere else is that we have no industry. A lot of property taxes. Hi. How do you become a monk? 
in our monastery, you become a monk by entering into this training, and you train and train and train until I say become a monk. <laughs> Is it, is, it years? Is, it year, is it years of study? Uh, yes, it does involve a time frame. It does, yeah. yeah. In our tradition, the teacher recognizes when the <coughs> student is ready to be the teacher. So uh, there have been uh, my first uh, pair of monks, uh, three monks that I ordained, took them uh, four years of study and practice. Okay, come and be a monk. Bring your sister. Do I get to wear women's outfits? Do I get to wear? Yeah. She wants to clothes. Choose me a for the fashion. I love it. Thank you. Any? Any other questions? <laughs> I love it. If only your sister would come up with something. <laughs> <laughs> Bershie, you had a question. Welcome Hi. to Philadelphia. I'm sorry? Welcome to Philadelphia. Yes, hello, Philadelphia. I love your city. You need to know that I come here to play a lot. So you might see me on the street somewhere, maybe even a bar having a martini one night. You know. But I've been, in fact, I was uh, born in Philadelphia. My mother's family, who is the Sicilian, I uh, was born, uh, raised in South Philly, and then we moved to New Jersey, and uh, I love the city a lot. I was saying that to uh, Hosho on the way over, because this is what, you said your second or third time here? Uh, maybe fourth or fifth. I've lived in Jersey about two and a half years. So, so yes, I love Philly, and I do plan to come back. And if you welcome me, I'll come back and talk to you more, because that's what I'm good at. I like talking. Any other questions? Well, again, and you need to know this, and anybody in this room who's known me knows this, and they will tell you that I never lie, eh, except sometimes. <laughs> it has been a privilege to be with you tonight. Thank you for inviting me. Bye-bye. Uh -huh. yeah,